This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, folks. Producer Alex here. You don't usually hear my voice so early in the podcast, so you know this is going to be a momentous message, or perhaps not. There's a slight issue with the audio on this week's episode. Uh, Ben sounds a little far away. Uh, Don't adjust your podcast player. Apologies for the slight issue with the audio. Back to normal programming next week. And here's the show. Hello, and welcome back to Romaniacs. This week we will not be talking about an imaginary £20 billion bridge from Scotland to Ireland, constructed (laughs) entirely from recycled dead cats. Every time Boris Johnson gets his bridge-building Lego kit out, you know he's trying to distract you from something, possibly the project formerly known as Brexit. (laughs) I'm Dorian Linsky, I've got some of our regulars with me. Naomi Smith is CEO of Best for Britain, which has just released its negotiating aims for the Brexit transition period. They include championing freedom of movement and encouraging cross-party cooperation. I mean, was this was this an easy gig coming up with? Did you did you kind of know the, the sort of goals sort of well in advance, or were there were there fierce late night arguments? <laughs> um, the, it was really easy because uh, we weren't trying to stop Brexit because we loved some buildings in Brussels. It was because of all the values that underpinned. Uh, internationalism and, and cooperation with other nations. So we just drew on those for okay. Now we have Brexited. What's the next best thing that we can hope to achieve? What are the values that underpin those? And then from that, the negotiating aims uh, were, were were pretty obvious. As everyone knows, any event that happens in the European Union is fundamentally about Britain. Yeah, of course, yeah. Specifically England. <laughs> um, what did you make of Sinn Féin's big victory in the Republic of Ireland? Do you think it has any no. connection to what's been going no. on here? No, and I think it's very English, uh, arrogant. Brendan O'Neill. Mm-hmm. Says in the spectator that it does. <laughs> it does. Um, okay, so first off, isn't it kind of comforting that it's not just the UK that uh, elects people with slightly more extreme um, positions on things? Uh, it was a youth-driven thing in no small part. Uh, lots of young people backing Sinn Féin because of their uh, policies around housing. There was also an older generation that were very angry about the raising of the pension age. And of course, they've got a proportionate system. So, you know, it was also a a single transferable vote system that that helped them there. But no, this isn't really much about Brexit and is much more about uh, you know, it's sim- similar to what we had here, where um, the the Labour Party in Ireland did a coalition after uh, the financial crisis and signed up to an austerity agenda in the same way that the Lib Dems did here, and neither of them have recovered. Um, and so this is just symptomatic of people being fed up with those that have failed them and trying something else. You don't think it shows some great new thirst for a united Ireland then? No, I don't think it does. Um, but I think... That it does obviously present, you know, even more uh, a problem for the Conservative and Unionist Party that there are two nations that potentially have more inclination towards border poles. However, of course, it's the Northern Irish that matter, uh, and not not the Southern Irish in uh, determining whether or not that will that will come to pass. Returning to Romania, as you heard him there, is Ben Stewart, one quarter of the much-loved Led by Donkeys campaign group, the Gorilla Street art team who spoke truth to the many lies and misdeeds of Brexiters. Led by Donkeys uh, went dark after the election, as did many of us in our hearts, but they returned in spectacular fashion on Brexit Day. They projected Boris Johnson's quotes about wanting to remain part of the single market onto Big Ben Clockface. They also projected a heartfelt message from World War II veterans on the White Cliffs of Dover, 
which I must admit reduced me to a weepy puddle. Oh, I was handling things very, very well on Brexit Day, and then I saw that we broke you, and it broke into <laughs> tiny little pieces. Um, did you have? Uh, did you have another option? Did you have lined up? Um, had the election produced a, a better outcome? Yeah, a, a campaign to win a people's vote. Alas, our searingly creative and effective campaign to keep us in Europe will remain untouched and unseen on the Google Drive of history. Um, yeah, we were planning. We were planning for, for for a people's vote campaign. You know, maybe in um, you know May or June, if there had been a majority for that in Parliament. Um, as it was, that didn't happen. So. I mean, we would have gone dark anyway. We were pretty burnt out after the election, truth be told. Mm. All of us quit our jobs for a few months to work on Led by Donkeys. Um, the aim was to stop Brexit happening on October the 31st. And then when, the, the, when there was an election to like put what little weight we have behind the push to get a majority in Parliament for a people's vote. And we were just simply exhausted at the end of it. So, you know, we came back in the early hours of December the 13th, feeling pretty dejected. My partner completely justifiably said, thank you, welcome back, here are your two children to look after. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd always decided that we were going to have some time off at that point. We weren't even sure if we were going to do anything on December, on the January the 31st. But then we knew that Farage would be on the telly in Europe. And as it was, he was waving his little plastic Union Jack with Anne Whittaker. We we really wanted to communicate something to Europe about what we thought Britain was. And we thought, who who could we give a platform to to tell a different story about Britain? And then we thought it would be appropriate if it was World War II veterans who had liberated Europe Mm -hmm. and that were in favour of staying in the European Union. So we went out and we found... um, Brigadier Stephen Goddard and um, and Sid from Wales, 98 years old and 95 years old respectively, and we went and recorded some interviews with them. And the difficult thing was actually what 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 to leave out because it was so it was so moving to hear them speak about their love for Europe and their fears for for, for the loss of peace that they fought for. Um, and then at the last minute, um, typical late donkey star, we thought we better do something that provides a still for the media as well. So we came up with this idea of the European star, and this is our star. Um, mm. Take take care of it for us and it did pretty well it, i mean it's got i think 7.8 million views on social media but more importantly for us it was on tv across europe and it was on the main french news after the mm. rugby etc and for us that was us saying to europe you have seen farage on the tv the chauvinistic style of britain. he's an ass there's a different story about britain that we want to tell you and mm. and to that end hopefully it was successful mm. and i think it's very important that you know, as campaigners, we're often very domestically focused and looking at making sure that the rest of the UK understands internationalism and Europeanism. And we could very well end up in a situation where we have very resoundingly made the case internally, um, but yet we've not kept the lights burning <laughs> with our yeah. nearest neighbours and that they may not want us back if we haven't let them know uh, how much we do love them. It's also them. just a simple matter of just not being embarrassed by Farage speaking for us and saying to the people who are watching from Europe like you know he isn't Britain obviously he makes a lot of noise but he isn't Britain and there's a different side to Britain and this guy Sid 95 years old that fought through Holland Belgium France and Germany has something to say about what being British means and it was a real pleasure and an honour to give them a platform we were talking about uh, some of these themes again including Nigel Farage sorry uh, but our special guest this week made headlines back in 2016 when after 24 years of living in the UK, she applied for citizenship and was advised to leave the country. When she first objected to the Home Office, she said the conversations she had were as absurd as a Monty Python sketch. Four years later, the giant Monty Python foot has crashed its way through the roof of 10 Downing Street. <laughs> Since then, she's become a campaigner for the Three Million, a group dedicated to protecting the rights of EU citizens living in the UK. Monique Hawkins returns to Romaniacs for the first time since July 2017, when the podcast was just a wee babby. Hi, Monique. Welcome back. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. So did you see things like, you know, when you're watching things like the Led by Donkeys video, uh, the sort of the MEP's farewell uh, to Brussels on Brexit Day, where we saw former guest Rory Palmer in tears, um, there was a lot of love for Europe. Was it kind of, obviously it was a bad, you know, a bad day in many ways. Um, but but do you think, were you sort of touched by this sort of Well, I was love. extremely lucky that I happened to be away for that whole week, uh, which wasn't planned, but was just fortuitous. But my colleagues from the Three Million were at the European Parliament in the Visitors Gallery. 
Uh, we've done an awful lot of work together with British in Europe, and one of my three million colleagues was had his arms around the chair of the British in Europe, who was just sobbing at that point. Um, I was lucky to be away. I sort of tried to stay completely unemotional, but I have to say, and I'm not making this up, there were two things that broke me. One was the Led by Donkeys video on the on the Dover that you just mentioned, and the other one, I have to say, was your Romaniac's final entry to the Brexit time capsule, the uh, Helderland Memorial. I tried to, I, I listened to that while I was away, and then I tried to tell my husband and brother-in-law about it, and couldn't actually get the words out mm. so upsetting so yeah yeah that was a really beautiful s- submission someone sent in um i mean obviously it's been another great week uh, for britain's treatment of um of citizens from elsewhere um as part of the three million have you noticed the their behavior towards eu citizens um improved at all since your experience with the may the news was there a certain kind of were they were they sort of shamed and goaded into uh, changing the processes. Well, no, I mean our our, our issue is not with with British people. It's it's with the politicians. That's what I mean. With, yeah. The, with yeah, that's what I mean with the home with the Home Office. Yeah, no, um, no, no, not really. I mean, there was there was a very very specific promise made during the um, election during the referendum campaign by Vote Leave by all the people who are now in power. It was signed by Johnson Patel. Gove and Stewart, which literally says that there will be no change for EU citizens already lawfully resident in the UK. These EU citizens will automatically be granted indefinite leave to remain in the UK and will be treated no less favourably than they are at present. Um, we're not being granted anything automatically. We have to apply mm. for permission to stay in our homes. Mm. And people don't understand that. Uh, you know, a lot of people think if you're married to a Brit, well, then of course you're OK. But you're not. You know, you can be married to a Brit, have British children. I mean, I was and it happened to me. And you have to apply for that permission. Um, if we don't apply by uh, 30th of June next year, we will be criminalised for it. Um, and on the other side of the pond for our British friends in Europe, um, again, Johnson, Gove, Gisela Stewart, Jacob Rees-Mogg, they're all on record as saying that the Vienna Convention 1969 would protect all the existing rights of British citizens exercising free movement rights in the EU. And I mean, that's just completely not true. Mm. Uh, they've all been landlocked into their country. They only get the rights in the country mm-hmm. um, where they're staying. And anyone who travels around making a living in multiple countries just has to try and make a different living now. We'll go into this in much more detail a bit later. Uh, But first, we should talk a little bit about what's going on in the Labour leadership race. Uh, Members of Keir Starmer's campaign team have been reported to the Information Commissioner alleging that they hacked into the party's membership database. Mm. Naomi. (laughs) (laughs) Um, one way of looking at this is, is sort of uh, the, the continuity Corbynism that, that currently runs the party machine, trying to nobble mm-hmm. alpha centrist dad Keir Starmer. Um, does he have a case to answer, or rather, do these two staffers have a case to answer? No, they don't, as far as I know. I mean, I'm not, you know, involved in in either of the campaigns uh, or Labour HQ, but as I understand it, it was a big mistake made by a staffer in Labour HQ to send out an email to everybody on the Labour database saying, here's how you can log into the system and campaign for candidates and make calls to people. And so uh, just as anyone who received the email, um, a couple of people from Keir's team logged in to see and then reported the breach and reported that immediately to Labour HQ saying, I don't think you meant to do this. Mm. Um, And they have now been, as I understand it, wrongly accused of uh, using it to download material or download data, which they they very strongly claim they did not do. Um, so this sounds like it's much more, um, you know, a, a mistake or whatever that's been made essentially with them. But I think what's really depressing about it is that everything that Corbyn claimed to be about, you know, a kinder politics, openness and transparency and trying to 
lift the lid on the dark arts of what was going on within the Labour Party HQ now seems to be happening within it. Well, it was, but um, that, I mean, that was uh, oh, totally, bullshit. Right, oh, yeah, of course. Um, so, so I think, I think that's, I think that's upsetting. But let's not forget how brutal internal Labour Party elections can be when you look at the re-election campaign of Len McCluskey a few years ago. You know, that that was brutal. L- Labour internal elections can be really horrible. Hmm. Uh, much more horrible than you see in in some other parties that have internal democracy, unlike you know the Conservative Party that doesn't really. Um, so yeah, it's it's depressing. Um, but I I don't as for any any of my read on it is that that nobody in Keir's team seems to have done anything wrong at all, and in fact tried to highlight a problem um, that 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 had occurred centrally. Um, Lisa Nandy. Um has sort of spoken at one point of just trying to sort of get beyond uh, sort of factions and um, good luck there. But I think if it feels like, do you think there is a possibility of doing that? Because it seems like, so for example, Keir Starmer is being tagged by many Becky Long Bailey supporters as a Blairite. Well done. When he's not a Blairite, like none of his kind of, I think because he just looks nice, but none of his sort of, policies or you know beliefs appear to be Blairite but there seems to be a kind of a need for a factional frame even when you have a candidate who's kind of very obviously trying to get the broadest possible I think there's actually hope for the Labour Party and that there is there is there is life for it beyond factionalism um the fact that how do I say it Becky Long Bailey Becky Long Bailey Becky Long the fact that Becky the fact that Becky Long Bailey isn't winning, I don't think she is going to win the race, um, indicates that there's just been a really a, a, a profound rethinking a, a, amongst many people who voted for Corbyn in, um, in 2015 and 2016. Lots of my friends who are really into the Corbyn project have stopped and thought really carefully about what yeah. happened um, six, eight weeks ago and are ready to try something different. I think it would be different if, if Long Bailey was about to win. I think you could see a really profound schism in the Labour Party and it could possibly break apart then. But I don't think she's going to win. I found it very interesting, actually, what happened in Corbyn's constituency, Islington North, the other night, where they nominated Starmer. Now, in the second round, Long Bailey had 135 votes. Starmer had about 90 and Nandy about 50. So you would have thought that in the final round, when Mm. Nandy was knocked out, it was obvious that Long Bailey was going to win. But in the final round, Long Bailey had 135 votes. In other words, every single person who voted for Nandy as their second preference voted Vicky Starmer. And yeah. okay, that's a small number of people. It's not a, a typical Labour constituency, perhaps. But nevertheless, it was an interesting poll of where Nandy supporters are. And I think it really is very bad news for Long Bailey that Nandy supporters, it seems, mm. will go to Keir Starmer. And certainly anecdotally, that's what all Nandy supporters would be telling mm. me. I thought Nandy had a good week as well, actually, and her proposal was about fighting anti-Semitism with the yeah, benchmark. Really, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the other candidates really need to match what she's done. Now, I've been really impressed with Nandy. I think, campaign. well, Nandy's my first choice right I think she's by far the most impressive yeah but I'm I obviously don't think she will win I think I agree on both points. but I think she's had a really good she's had a really which is going to place campaign. her very well in a in a sort of Starmer I was really disappointed with cabinet. some of the polling of the public where they said that she's not up to it and it just felt there was a sort of misogynist tinge to her and Emily Thornberry and quite often. kind of out of their depth yes quite often women seem to be seen as out of their depth yeah nonsense let's have a few reminders from Naomi it's your last chance to get tickets to see Romaniacs live in Liverpool this coming Saturday, 15th of February. Ian Dunt, Roz Taylor and producer Andrew will be joined at the beautiful Epstein Theatre by not one but two special guests. The Liverpool Echoes political editor Liam Thorpe and the brilliant EU law analyst Professor Michael Dugan. And the Merseyside-specific merchandise, suitable for reds, blues and none of the above, is in and looking good. A splendid time is guaranteed for all, as they say around here. Visit ticketline.co.uk slash Romaniacs to get yours. If you can't make it, don't forget our new companion podcast, The Bunker. It's just like Romaniacs, but without the Brexit. Well, there's probably a little bit of Brexit in it. This week, we've got the highly entertaining EU trade expert, Dmitry Grozabinski, sparring with Ian Dunt on Johnson's obnoxious trade posture, plus Kath Haddon from the Institute for Government on what's in store for the Constitution. That's The Bunker, politics on lockdown every Wednesday morning. Find it on the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the one with the yellow logo, not the one about golf. Thanks, Naomi. Now, fruitcakes rise up. 
<laughs> Last week, Nigel Farage on Ma victoriously declared that after being told he was mad for wanting to leave the EU for decades, Remainers are fruitcakes and loonies now. A reference, of course, to David Cameron's famous description of UKIP as fruitcakes, loonies and closet racists, which is very offensive. They weren't closet. <laughs> Obviously, uh, a podcast calling itself Romaniacs cannot be too wounded by the word fruitcake. But I wonder, Naomi, is there a certain freedom at uh, being on the being on the outs at this particular point in time? It's like we, we we've we've sort of got nothing left to lose in some. I mean, there's always more to lose. Don't worry, there's always more to lose. <laughs> but you know, we've we've lost one one sort of, sort of big battle there. We're not constantly firefighting and being at kind of like battle stations, just like, oh my god, what's going to happen in Parliament? Oh my god, do we have to prepare for yeah, people's yeah. vote? Um, uh, is 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 there a kind of certain sort of liberation in sort of having time to to sort of think? I mean, look at Romaniacs. Our sub strapline was own the Ramon. You know, I think fine i you call me a fruitcake that's that's well, doesn't doesn't matter doesn't um impact us i think the point you're really making is about it, it, the benefit of time is important um we don't have to rush i mean i think you know ben and i have both been in situations where we've been utterly exhausted by the last 12 months in particular the number of votes that were happening all the time every single vote felt like that could be the crucial one for the entire campaign so you were just throwing everything at it every ounce of energy it is now not that reactive however we've got 12 months of transition and we've talked about it before in the show the extension deadline is july so we could end up realizing that actually this year of all years is the most important year yet in the whole of this Brexit debacle. This is when our future trading relationship or not is going to be cemented. Um, obviously all the talk about Australia is just a proxy for no deal. Uh, we've we've got a government that um, is talking up a lot of that stuff um, and may well be in a you know flouncing out of negotiations and not wanting to uh, properly negotiate and play a game of chicken with the EU and will they blink at the last minute and offer us Canada uh, so that they can claim they've got a deal. So while we've got time to pause and be less totally knee-jerk, and by that I mean literally pivoting from one day to the next, it probably still is, we've got to think about what's happening next week rather than tomorrow. So it's it's less frenetic, but it's arguably even more important. Ben, um, there's quite a popular argument. Um, it's not just from the Spectator, but not just from sources like that. It's called sort of hardline Remainers. Uh, is that us? Um, the accidental heroes of Brexit, and says our opposition paved the way for Johnson's deal. Do you buy this idea that we got so carried away by the idea of stopping Brexit altogether that we sort of left a, a softer deal on the table at some point? I think about this quite a lot, actually, and kind of do the counterfactual. And obviously there was that moment... In January last year, where May's deal was on the table and it would have passed with Labour support. But then I think, what would have happened next? And I look, I think other people more knowledgeable than me would be able to like play this out better than I could. But I think that May would have been overthrown by her own party if she'd have passed the withdrawal agreement with the help of Labour votes. And it's likely that Johnson or someone like Johnson would have taken over as Prime Minister. And I'm not sure then we would have been in a particularly different scenario than we find ourselves in now, because that crew in the ERG crew in charge of the second phase of negotiations that we're in now would absolutely not have compromised on their vision. And I don't think even they would have been contained by a withdrawal agreement. The interesting question would have been, how would have a general election played out in that scenario? Would they have been able to get a majority of 80 by running mm. a Brexit betrayal narrative when a Tory prime minister with Labour support would have been the people that they were accusing of betraying mm. Brexit? So, look, there is a counterfactual where, where, where they could be right. I happen to think that if May's deal had passed, eventually we would have ended up in a pretty similar situation to the one we find ourselves in. And it in wasn't now. a fantastic deal. It wasn't. I have to say, I remember at the deal. time. Uh, and, and the indicative votes were never there for other options yeah. in enough numbers. Like, remember, it was Parliament constantly voting against everything. Um, and so while we now might be incredibly grateful to end up with something closer to a Norway style deal, it wasn't like. Norway had the numbers in the way that a people's vote choice, a final say referendum on a deal didn't. Um, so I think the counterfactuals 
can be cruel to oneself well, to, to overplay them too much. Well, one I wanted to put to you, I'd like to recommend the latest episode of the podcast My Friends and Other Europe is Possible, um, which is, I think, probably the most bracingly honest post-mortem that I, I've heard so far. And one thing they say, um, which I've also heard elsewhere, is that actually people's vote was sort of always a, a delusion. They were never going to be the numbers. Mm. Now, personally, I always thought it was... I always said it was a long shot but i agreed with the activists who had taken quite a long time to develop that strategy and decide on that that it was sort of the only shot and 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 that's i suppose a lot of people who criticize that option they don't then go ah and instead you could have done x Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was there another shot that we missed was there another way of either stopping brexit or getting a fan getting one that was much better than may's deal which is much all eea and eftery and I mean, it's kind of the point I was making just before. Like, it, when you, given that it was all about Parliament, it wasn't really a choice that any of us were able to take. Parliament weren't in that place at all. I mean, Stephen Kinnock and others sort of admirably, as a small cabal, um, Nick Bowles uh, uh, among them, advocating for that. But it, it, there were ne- there was no real momentum for that. Now you might argue, well, had the big campaigns got behind it and pushed that, then maybe others would have followed suit. Um, what what I think was a travesty of the three years after the referendum and and four years, I suppose, up to now, um, was that we didn't make the European case enough, so we didn't bring the country with us, so there was always that risk that we may have got our final say referendum and lost it. Well, this was the this was the thing that actually on, the, on that podcast... I should stop plugging other people's podcasts. <laughs> uh, but Zoe Williams says that one silver lining is, is that she doesn't think now the Remain would have won a second referendum, given uh, particularly given the last election result. No, I don't. But, I don't know whether but, I do think that. Well, I don't but, care because the stakes were so fucking high. Yeah, we had to try it. But, like, do you know, like, to to do nothing or to have not tried to win mm. it was, you know, it, it's we we'd already lost. We were losing, and so what? You lose again, or there is a chance that somehow you pull it off and you don't, and so. You know, the alternative is so dire that you have to just. Try no, I stuff. no, I totally agree, and that was why yeah. I was was up for it. Right. But I suppose what, what I probably didn't phrase that. But what what she was saying was that it's almost that weird sort of sense of relief that even though you fought so hard for something and you've lost and you're kind of gutted, there is also a sense that like, well, we might have had to go through this incredibly bitter, mm-hmm. probably horrible campaign, mm-hmm. then may have lost again, which mm-hmm. would have been appalling mm. or may have won but probably so narrow you know probably won narrowly and then the brexit was furious again the brexit party would have kind of spiked uh you know would, would you know would have gone up again um there would be people screaming about democratic legitimacy there were like all these kind of dominoes that could have fallen in in countless directions and even though that was still like i said something i was willing to push for now that that hasn't happened is the part of you that kind of feels like ah. The moment, the moment that it was 1948, <laughs> there were no good outcomes. There were no great outcomes. No. If we'd have won, it wouldn't. It, it wouldn't have like been a great. It wouldn't. It still wouldn't have been a great outcome for the reasons that you've articulated. I don't think the general election is a particularly good. Um, what Zoe said that because of the general election indicated we would have lost the second referendum. And again, the general election, you know, conservative Remainers decided that they were more conservative than they were Remainers. And in a referendum, they could have voted for Remain without feeling that they were going to let Corbyn in. I think it would have yeah. been, a, you know, I don't think no, it's a great example. I didn't buy it. I still think, yeah. I think we would have won, but I actually think that the, the mm-hmm. victory yeah. would have created all this yeah. other. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, mean, so you know, I, I also think we owed it to people like Monique, right? You know, it was. It, it may not have felt like much of a victory to us, but in terms of their lives, this is real people. This isn't just about trade and GDP. And I think that's so much of what we lost in all of this is what we were fighting for was keeping families together. Mm. Um, and so I think that we would have really been letting down you know, those among us that we count as our as our friends well, and fellow sisters and that's why we, not that's, carried on fighting. That's why we did it. I also think that gloating is misplaced. So the idea um, that, that sort of Starmer led Labour would immediately commit to rejoining um, is sort of is sort of nonsense. But mm. when do we think that that idea could become? viable mm. um and bear in mind of course that most labor voters and members even more so since the election since they lost a lot of levers are sort of are sort of pro-remain it's a very pro-european party mm. how long before not long before we can actually rejoin but before that can even be talked about without people going shut up you lost your idiots you you don't need to do that 
sort of you know controversial stuff until you're building your manifesto and that's four years away before they'll be committing to that sort of stuff they will have their conferences and there will be presumably groups within Labour um, the Labour movement for Europe for instance that will probably be push, trying to put down CLP motions to commit the party to rejoining at some point I would imagine and those may or may not reach the conference floor and then it may may or may not get adopted but in terms of optically for um, a new leader I mean Ben might have a, a clearer view on this but I don't think that that will be prioritised in the first year at least um, I think the the concerns around um, the, the big trigger points that we know that we've got so you've got Scottish elections in 2021 that will be focusing the minds of any unionist party of which Labour of course is one um, and if uh, the SNP do have an even uh, better result there then you know the pressures for that independence referendum come up hard and fast so I, I do think that those more domestic issues will have to be at the forefront of uh, and and other constitutional and electoral reform things that we've all talked about and you know what is Labour's route back to victory without some of those big changes I think will have to be where they're prioritising their their current positions but that's not to say that you can't make very strong internationalist noises and of course there are all these seats that we know have despite having voted Conservative and therefore for Brexit are going to be incredibly damaged by particularly a no deal, uh, even a Canada deal in terms of the jobs. Uh, yesterday, we saw a bank pulling out, one of the challenger banks pulling out of the UK and citing Brexit as the key reason why they have done that. The, the more that that begins to happen in some of those seats, um, uh, the more permission Labour will have to then start to say, OK, we do need to have a much closer relationship. Blah, blah, blah. Whether they can go as far as rejoin quickly, I, don't, I really don't know and probably wouldn't advise them to. Um, because, Ben, people like Daniel Hanan, uh, they started plotting this path uh, after Maastricht. Mm. Um, so, like, a long time ago, a lot of the kind of the key, the key Brexiters and people like Bernard Jenkins or whatever, this has been their dream for a very long time. Yeah. And they were, if not fruitcakes, they were, they were sort of on the fr fringes. Uh, they, you know, they were John Major's bastards and so on, and they were an irritant. Mm. Um, and they ended up winning. Yeah. So... Well, it's a model that was also adopted by, you know, the kind of ecosystem of right-wing think tanks in America mm. that, that saw what was happening in universities in the 60s and 70s and started having a long game to affect the national conversation and culture and build up an infrastructure. Um, I sometimes think we on the left don't have the patience mm. to do that. There's a question whether we have the money to do that as well. You know, it costs money to keep mm. the flame alive. In response to your question about when you can say rejoin i think it totally depends on what happens next mm. you know um it's a kind of reverse shock doctrine like um hayek said that in a crisis you can propose policy solutions that would be laughed out of the room otherwise and let's see what happens next over the next few years brexit might be a bit of an anti-climax might be a bit of a damp squib maybe nothing much will change then again it might it might be incredibly damaging to communities across this country where suddenly people look fondly back on the days when we were members of the European Union and suddenly what s s previously seemed impossible to articulate becomes the obvious thing to say at that point. I just don't think we know what's going to happen next and what's going to be possible. Now for our regular segment, To the Barricades. Each week, one of our regulars offers something positive and productive that listeners can do each week, rather than just shouting at question time. Well, that's fun too. Get ready to grab a ladder and industrial amount of wallpaper paste, because it's Ben Stewart's turn this week. Ha, well, we're not putting up any billboards, but we are giving money to the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. To take, I know, to do, often we say that on this show, don't we? <laughs> yeah. um, and I hope people do actually do it. Um, detention Action and Bail for Immigration Detainees, who are three organisations that I think should be getting a spike in donations this week. Uh, so we're going to the barricades to fight the deportation of people to countries they've never lived in since they were kids, because they have possibly one drug conviction so for those of you that haven't been following this there was a flight from Doncaster a couple of nights ago uh, to Jamaica it had on it um, people who don't have British passports but perhaps have lived here since they were kids amongst them were people who have one-time drug offences or perhaps dangerous driving offences um, the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants brought a judicial review 
um, to try to stop the flight because many of those people hadn't had adequate legal advice beforehand. They won it, and some people were taken off that flight. Um, Grant Shapps, um, the I think he's the transport secretary, said we shouldn't have the courts being used to overturn perfectly legitimate decisions taken by ministers and parliament in this country. I think that's exactly what courts are here to do. So I think we need to get behind those organisations. I would say I hesitated before bringing this to the to the barricade section because I think it's possibly a fight that the government wants to have. And I think it's something that Cummings is happy to have a scrap over because it's a kind of skirmish in the culture wars. Mm. But nevertheless, as liberals, we can't shy away from these kind of fights just because Number 10 wants to have them. We really have to defend our core values. And one way to do that is by giving money to those organisations. Can I just jump in on that? Because um, there's a lot of parallels with EU citizens here because at some point... um, a Jamaican is described as, this was from the Windrush debate in June 2018, our brothers and sisters who have grown up with us and whom we and with whom we have grown up, who come from all parts of what was once the empire and is now the Commonwealth and who have enriched our lives and our culture every day since our contacts were first built. The Windrush generation are not a foreign generation, but our own generation and very much part of us. So how does someone described like that suddenly just get labelled as a foreign national offender Mm. and and that's it that's the only label and what we're very concerned about at the three million is at what point does the phrase endlessly repeated we are um, they say EU citizens are our friends colleagues and neighbours and we want you to stay Uh, and you know it's going to flip and on December the 9th just before the election Johnson just upset me so much because he said EU migrants have been able to treat the UK as if it's part of their own country for too long so I completely agree I see this sort of complete culture war coming down it's probably got Dominic Cummings behind it and it's this this political sort of reinforcement of a populist narrative which just reduces us and future immigrants to a number and a commodity and we have to stop that because we just know where dehumanising people mm. leads us. Absolutely. Well, we just uh, handily segued into our final section. Um, we're going to talk to Monique Hawkins uh, more about the three million and situation. Um, so Yvette Cooper said it had the potential to come Windrush on steroids. Um, how likely are, are kind of... Wh- how big is the risk of sort of unjust deportations at this the, stage? The risk is huge um, because, as I explained in my intro, the um, we are, we're being made to apply for something and one of the campaigns that we've been running is to try to change the law we're not trying to change the settled status scheme but we're trying to change the legal basis of it um, so that rather than being this application scheme with a deadline after which you get criminalized and subject to either well it's not exactly deportation but it's more likely self-removal or um, you know because of the hostile environment Mm. just life becomes untenable because deportation is actually quite difficult and expensive so they kind of just delegate that out Mm. to um, you know landlords and and um, employers and everything so um, we've been wanting to change the the legal basis of it such that if you miss the deadline you are you still have those rights you simply struggle to prove them so you miss the deadline and then you realize that you're you you know that that you're not managing to get jobs and uh, rent properties so you then go and register And, and a really good sort of um, parallel to this is the digital TV switchover campaign um, which was about the most successful sort of mass registration scheme that there was Uh, it was run between 2007-2012 and 97% of people registered by the deadline Um, and so the day after the deadline suddenly the people who hadn't were faced with a blank TV screen but you know they weren't thrown in prison for it their television wasn't confiscated they could simply go and register and put it right. So if you apply that 3% to us, and I mean, there's no way they're going to get that bigger Mm. percentage, but even 3% is over 100,000 people. Mm. And 
you know, it is... Well, has there but, ever been 100% but, registration? No, never, never, but, but even when people do it, it's a difficult process. You know, I've got a member of staff that's just gone through it, um, and she, she's Belgian, and it's not easy. And she's a highly educated, very multilingual person with extreme fluency in English and she kept being asked for more and more and more and you know she's been a student she hasn't necessarily had her own utility bills you know the right documentation so even if you make the leap into an early adoption adopter into the process it's still difficult is that absolutely I mean it's it's they've kind of done it with this app and uh, an online application we've always argued that it should be done at local council levels so that people can make you know having the app is great but you should have the alternative of just going to your local council and seeing someone face to face explain your situation and have someone make the decision there not just sort of help you through the app uh, I mean I helped a, a, a Dutch woman who's been here since 1970s one address she's retired state pension system couldn't find her at all I mean I we spent hours uploading stuff she was then still asked for more Mm. um, information it was terrible one of my colleagues helped um, uh, an Italian man who was 101 years old (gasps) and uh, the system wouldn't accept his birth date they said he was one so he (laughs) was like you know because he was more than 100 so they rang up the helpline and they said well just put it in then and you know process it and he said no I can't because if it goes in as a one year old then you're treated as a child and you have to link it to an adult and you know it was horrendous such complications there's a there's a woman who has been refused settled status and only been offered pre-settled status twice now so despite help with from professionals and that's because she's missing nine months of residence in the UK because she was in a woman's refuge for that time and at, if you're in a woman's refuge you get a PO box mm. number you don't have quite, an address quite rightly to protect yeah, you yeah. exactly and she has not been able to get them to change their mind she's on pre-settled status and it's you know it's heartbreaking so once again it's it's the most vulnerable that are most penalized absolutely and the government just you know going back to treating us as as numbers they just keep gloating about you know three million those statistics are sort of dubious there's double counting in there someone who has applied for pre-settled status and then when they hit the five-year mark can apply for settled status they're counted twice so it's at best, it's three million applications, not three million applicants. There's a backlog of 300,000 people, and that isn't a sort of first-in, first-out backlog. There's people in there. We know someone who's non-EU husband of a Spanish citizen, no criminal convictions or anything. has been in that backlog for 10 months. It's still waiting. I mean, this does terrible things to people's sort of mental health and sense of well-being. What could they do better, then? What would you... What would you change? Because there's, there's obviously, I mean, this kind of the, I've, I've, you know, everybody knows that experience of trying to fill in sort of forms online and then it won't accept this information or it throws you out of that uh, section. Um, what could, what could they be doing? Like just sort of more, more helplines, less reliance on this app. Yeah, I mean, the resolution helpline has to be said has been pretty good. You know, that they do get praise, but I think is what's needed is an ability to go along to your local um, council and just make an appointment and sit down with someone, and not then for that someone to have to fill in the app for you because then you're still going to um, stumble up against these same technological barriers but someone who can look at your life and your story and your evidence and make the decision and say yes you it know, seems like they could be able to spare the time and resources for you to actually have a conversation with a person mm. absolutely uh, i mean it's a whole computer says no i mean for the elderly for the less digitally literate it's it's just horrendous I and mean, i mean the digital thing as well our other big campaign is physical documents i mean eu citizens get a digital only status rather than a physical document uh, there's been academic research that said 89.5% said they were very happy uh, unhappy with the digital only proof uh, the letter that you get by email says in bold this letter is not proof of your status 
um, you know, next year when we have to start relying on that status, um, you know, right to work checks. It's like a 10 step digital process rather than showing someone mm. your card. If you were a landlord and you had to choose between someone with a British passport, a non-EU citizen with a card and then a, uh, an EU citizen who says, would you mind just logging into this website and putting in this code and my date of birth? And then, you know, eventually mm-hmm. you'll see that really honestly i'm 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 allowed to rent you know who do you think they're going to give the the the, the tenancy or the job to Uh, and for for brits who live uh in the rest of the eu are you aware of particular sort of countries where there are similar sort of mirror issues because presumably they've all got different yeah, systems. well, their their main concern um, is is about implementation. I mean, it's, it is really good that we've got this withdrawal agreement. Things would have been far far worse without it. But their main concern is that, um, in in that sense, the UK is way ahead of of the other um, countries because we've been planning this, or, or the government's been planning this settled status scheme for so long. Um, they say that they still haven't got published legislation or deadlines or procedures or penalties for not registering in most member states. Uh, But they understand that over half of the member states are making them reapply for their status, even though they are already registered. Um, Another issue they're very worried about is voting rights. I mean, it's an issue for us as well. We've been told that we can uh, still vote and stand as candidates in the upcoming local elections, but we have no uh, automatic rights beyond that because um, so we could all lose those. They're they're kind of doing that country by country. So um, they've got a um, bilateral agreement with Spain, Luxembourg and Portugal, but the rest of us are still waiting, and we might. This might be our last election coming up. No taxation without representation. Uh, exactly, right? but you know, sixty percent of um, Brits in Europe were already disenfranchised anyway, even though it's been a Tory manifesto commitment so, for yeah. forever. Uh, Brits in France have already received letters telling them that they're going to be struck off the electoral roll now, and that councillors are having to step down. So, um, and ha- do happy remind days. us, we talk about the three million. How many British in Europe are there? Uh, we think around one point two million. Okay, so this is over four million people being affected. That makes you larger than the population of Small. Liechtenstein, <laughs> Wales. Yeah, you're getting on for the size of Ireland almost in terms. Oh, of, we're larger than know, some EU states. You, you are presumably yes, many of the Baltic states. So. Um, it's an outrage. It's a, it's a complete outrage. Absolutely, and 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 you are being disenfranchised in in no small part, and it's incumbent upon all of us. I mean, this is this is the humanity and the human story of Brexit. Um, we we all know people and all love people and are all reliant on people who are going to be affected by this. Um, if we aren't those people ourselves, um, I, I I just I think I find it, it, it incredible that. Uh, you are a population bigger than that of an EU member state, uh, many EU member states, and yet we haven't, um, you know, done anything other than use you as bargaining chips. Absolutely. Many, despite the Pythonesque scenario three years ago, you have been a British citizen since then, during three of the worst years in the history of Britain. We talk a lot about kind of relationship to sort of... Uh, to sort of patriotism, how we feel about the country, you know, over the last few years. Despite... Brexit. How, I mean, how do you feel about being a British citizen? British citizen. What are the things that you can be uh, proud of, or that do make you feel like? It's very good? mixed. I mean, I always felt pretty British before the referendum, mm. and then the referendum, and sudden, and, and the day that I became a British citizen, I, I dressed all in black with an orange scarf to sort of hold on to my Dutchness. Um, I, I felt as un-British as I think I've ever felt. How old were you? So, how old were you when you? Move from Holland to here. I was. I came here for university. Right. So um, yeah, quite a long time ago. <laughs> um, but you know, my beef is with the politicians. It's not with people. I still, you know, I have wonderful friends. I think this country is so incredibly beautiful. Um, I'm I'm walking the southwest coast path very very slowly in bits. Every time I go down there, I just sort of weep with joy at how beautiful the country is and and that keeps me grounded really but in terms of how i feel about british politics well it's heartbreaking really 
And are there any practical things that sort of listeners can do to help? Um, whether yes. that be donations or anything else? Very much, because donations is top of our list because up to now we've been able to do an awful lot of it with just pure enthusiasm and volunteering i mean i myself i took sort of seven months off work as well uh i've never been paid by the three million um but i've also had no experience i'm completely i was never political didn't have any campaign experience everything's been learned sort of on the job and that's taken us a a long long way you know we had a lot of meetings in Brussels we met Michel Barnier because we were speaking from the heart you know um, but now going forwards a lot of what we need to do is sort of it's detailed it's potential legal challenges we've got two legal challenges running at the moment we need you know detailed campaign expertise and both us and British in Europe are sort of I wouldn't quite say on our knees, but we are, um, you know, desperate for money on both our websites, which is BritishInEurope.org and the three million.org.uk. There are fundraisers. Uh, in particular, for the three million, I'd say if you can possibly bring yourself to do a standing order as opposed to a one-off um, donation, even if it's just two pounds fifty a month, because anything that's regular hmm. is sort of helps us to plan for the future. Um, you know, you can alternatively sign up to our newsletters. We've both got newsletters because that uh, there'll be regular campaigns to write uh, to your MP on particular issues, which, you know, it's always very valuable when British people write on our behalf as well. Because you had um, Alberto Costa as the MP that was sort of really, you know, leading the charge for the three million in Parliament. Who, who, who are your sort of key allies still in Parliament? Uh, well, people like Stuart MacDonald and Paul Blomfield have been very strong for us. There's many, actually. Good. But of course, they've got a minority now. We're nearing the end of the show, and now that we've buried the Brexit time capsule, it's time to get to work on a new segment. Listener Lucas Hare, co-host of the excellent Dylan podcast, Is It Rolling, Bob, has sent an idea. Instead of the time capsule, how about building a bridge? To the future, back to the EU, to understanding, to merely bridge the chasm, bridge over troubled water, whatever. Every week, the guests suggest one item that will be a brick in the bridge. Hopefully, as with the time capsule, one day its time will come. It will no longer be needed. The process will end. Who knows what that will mean? Anyway, the idea is bridges, not walls. So, we're very pleased to announce Romaniacs Inc. has been privately contracted to build the Brexit Bridge. <laughs> a proper bridge. Monique Hawkins, here's your regulation hard hat and high vis. What's the first brick to add to the foundation? Uh, let's offer them continuing free movement. Yeah. Yay. And thus begins construction on the Brexit Bridge. We'll be asking our guests for more ideas in the weeks and months to come. This week's foreign language clip is from a real life person, Monique Hawkins. Dit is onze ster. Zorg er goed voor, alsjeblieft. That means, this is our star. Please look after it. Oh. We're always looking out for clips in the languages of Europe and beyond, so record something short and send it to info at romaniacs.com. And that's the show. Thanks to Naomi, Ben and Monique. Thank you. The brilliant Corner Shop, who made our theme tune, have a new album out soon called England is a Garden, so you can pre-order that. In the meantime, here's Demon is a Monster and the traditional thank you to some of our Patreon backers. You are our Valentines. And a big love from me to Tim Sharrock, Gareth Colwell, Sam Oxley, Nathan Nelson, Jessica Cox, Guy Buckland, Adrian Mack, Tina Spilotti, Nicola Tut, and Hannah Woodier. Hola and gracias from me to Ellen Horton, Helen Hoey, Gil Shalit, Ginger Russell, T. Bateman, Catherine Schneider, Andrew Taylor, Celia Martin, Aaron, and Genevieve Robbins Cherry. Champagne kisses for me to Jane Rowland Jones, Steve Norledge, Jenny Evans, Fiona Kyle, Jordan D, Andreas Back Jensen, Leslie Coots, Nick Kajax, Lucy Armstrong, Neil Casey, and one small correction, Ree Duffy. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs was produced and presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Ben Stewart. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.